We expected a mixed response to that. Everybody has a different feeling when they understand that their church is going to cover the subject of money. And so I just thought, I'm going to grab the subject by the throat. We're calling the series, Just Don't Preach About Money. Uh, and you know what? Let me just say this. I am so thankful to be part of a church family where no one has even remotely given me a hint of that sentiment. But on occasion, you hear about uh, colleagues and friends from other churches who have something happening in the life of their church, and somebody just says, hey, this is good. Don't mess it up. Don't talk about money. But the reality is, I could avoid that subject, but Jesus doesn't. <laughs> if you count in Scripture, at least 37 times he addresses it quite head on. Um, there is a little bit, I've got to acknowledge this, some pastors have taken advantage of this and made it to be a bigger thing than Jesus did, and that's not okay. Um, many people would say out there or have said historically, like, you know, Jesus talks more about money than blah, 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 and 11 out of his 39 parables are about money. Well, it's true that 11 of 39 include money, but they're not all about money of those 11. Sometimes money is the illustration to make a different point. But on 37 occasions, Jesus does address the subject of money, and quite clearly, can you imagine if he didn't? And he just sort of said, yeah, there is a divide between spiritual and material, and you follow me with the, the spiritual side of things, and then everything material, that's up to you. I leave that to you. I mean, we're already, as a humanity, having a hard enough time with money, and uh, can you imagine if there was not wisdom from God's word, if Jesus didn't have direction and hope and help on this subject for us too, but he does, and so that's a good thing. 37 times, that's more times than he speaks about forgiveness. That's more times than he speaks about healing. That's more times than he speaks about repentance. That's more times than he talks about being saved. So it's important. And he says a lot of helpful things, controversial things, strong things, one of them being in Matthew chapter 6. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And my goodness, for many of us, that just strikes us right in the heart. And Jesus has to address this because the way our world works, it cannot work without some sort of an economic system where we buy, sell, and you know, just make a way in this world. He understands that. But what he knows is that cannot consume us. That cannot be the primary reality that drives everything in existence for us. And for most of us humans, it becomes that way. But as followers of Christ, we're introduced to a different way, a way of following God. Using money, seeing its potential, trusting God with it, and following him in how we handle our resources. So the series is called Just Don't Preach About Money, and we are preaching about money for the next four weeks. So if you're the kind of person that's looking for a four-week holiday, uh, we'll learn something about you if you, check, if you come back after four weeks. Okay, uh, I said I'm going for the throat on everything right up front here, so that's the series title. I don't usually have a sermon title, but I decided to give one today in case it's a memorable thought for anybody. Here's the sermon title. Jesus loves Christians who don't tithe. Silence and a phone call. Somebody's looking for any opportunity to get out. Please call, please call, please call. Excuse me, I gotta get it. Jesus loves Christians who don't tithe. And I just need to say that in case a subject like this um, creates anxiety for some of you. I don't know the experiences you've come out of. Many of us have moved uh, around and now we found ourselves in Comox. So you've been part of other church families. And sometimes in our spiritual journeys, 
uh, we can be receiving messages that um, are concerning money, and, and it leaves us wondering if, like, does my salvation hinge on whether I tithe or not? Does the love of Christ for me hinge upon whether I tithe or not? And the answer very clearly that you need to hear from this pulpit is no, it doesn't. And um, I practice a tithe, that's our family practice, that's the minimum that we wish to do, and so uh, I know many people in our church family, that's what they sign up for too, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. You may have a totally different point of view and practice, we love you. And if nothing changes, we love you. Um, so that's not the issue in a series like this. The issue is to turn to God's word and allow it to instruct us because that's its position in our lives. Amen? Amen. We're going to allow it to instruct us and help us on this important subject. So with that in mind, let's turn to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And uh, I want us just to look at two verses here and then we're going to go to a main text today in 1 Corinthians 15 and 16. So if you want to get ahead, 1 Corinthians 15, 16 is where we're going in a moment. Let me pray. Father, help. <laughs> Important subject, all kinds of feelings about it, and we need your spirit. And I feel like I have permission to pray on behalf of our whole congregation right now and say, Jesus, we submit ourselves to you. We submit ourselves to your word. And if there's anybody in our context here who's experienced hurt or discomfort because of the subject matter, would you help them graciously in this time as well? We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Luke chapter 11, verse 37, it says this, when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee, uh, Pharisees, by the way, if you're new to some of this language, Pharisees were a religious sect of leaders. They were almost pseudo-political, and they propped up a lot of um, scriptural things, but they embellished it or they codified it to the nth degree because they had this foundational idea that if we can live out faith perfectly, as perfectly as possible, then Yahweh may return uh, and rescue us. A Messiah may come to us. They felt that God hadn't rescued yet because they had been uh, imperfect somehow. And th what they failed to see was that that was the, the tragedy of humanity. That was the whole human condition and all of us were in need of God. They somehow got this idea that we could probably get this almost perfectly right. So let's codify everything. The Bible says this, we'll add these details to it so everybody knows what must be lived out so that we can welcome a Messiah, so that we can welcome Yahweh's help to our world. So that was what the Pharisees were obsessed with. And Jesus is, you know, he interacts with them on several occasions through the Gospels. So a Pharisee invites him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. Interesting, and we'll return to that later. A Pharisee invites Jesus for a meal, he shows up. He starts um, sharing what gets titled here as six woes with the Pharisee, W-O-E, woe. And that word is sort of a little bit of like, watch out. But in the original language, that word woe also, there's a sense of grief. Like, oh. It's God showing up and he's seeing how the Pharisees are doing things and, and unjustly taking advantage of people and missing the point on so many things. And so this is God saying, Oh, and then he's clarifying six things with them. And I want us to look at one of them in verse 42. He says this, Woe to you Pharisees, 
Imagine your dinner guest <laughs> talking to you this way. Uh, Woe to you Pharisees, because you give a tenth or a tithe of your mint and rue and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. And so he's pointing something out. He's like, you guys, it's become obvious that you've picked up on our Jewish historical scriptural basis for a practice of a tithe, but you've codified it to the nth degree so that if people have a little garden box of a few herbs growing in their garden, if they don't tithe properly on that, the Messiah might not come. Yahweh might not help us. So they codify and say, listen, if you have a little bit of mint that happens to sprout out, tithe on it. And so Jesus is kind of saying, okay, guys, congratulations. You're tithing on the smallest things in the world, but you've missed the big point, which is God's justice and his love. And how many of you think that as a church, we should be about the big point of God? Amen. What I find fascinating is, and if you read Jesus through the gospels, on many occasions, he says things like this. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And a lot of times when he drops one of those, it's because he's addressing something the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or the teachers of the law have codified. And so he's saying to the people, listen, you've heard it said. Scripture said this originally, then it got codified like this, but I say to you, and then he clarifies it for people. So on some occasions he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And on other occasions we find Jesus saying this, a new command I give to you. I just need to point out, if we're being faithful to Jesus, faithful to the text, when Jesus talks about tithing, he's, he's in a transitionary period from Old Covenant into New Covenant. He does not say, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And he does not say, a new command I give to you. What he says is, you should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Is he advocating for tithing on the mint and rue and all the garden herbs to the nth degree. No, he's not validating the codifying work that the Pharisees had done. But he continues to uphold this idea of the people of God proportionately returning to God as part of their worship, resources that God gives to them. Jesus had the opportunity to say, I knew, you've heard it said this, but I give you a new command. Tithe to one another. Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> no, he didn't say that. He did not quash the historical work of God's people of giving regularly in what at the time was known as tithes. Historically, if you're interested in doing some research in the background of where this word tithe comes from in, in a Christian faith context, we look to Leviticus chapter 27, Deuteronomy chapter 14, Malachi chapter 3. There's several other places as well, but essentially at the end of the day, because it was largely an agricultural culture, um, there wasn't a lot of money being used early on. It was all agriculture. The way people gave their offerings was by giving the first and the best of their crops to God. And so as other resources came into the world of the people of God, the principle of the first and the best, and in those times, especially the tenth, carried on. It was all part of worship. It was all part of expression of trust. And it was, in a way, a way of regularly detaching themselves from the first and the best and this obsession with overproduction and because, and as Jesus clarifies, you cannot serve two masters. If you cannot live with open hands, you will end up living with clutched hands, holding on to possession, holding on to resource, and it will steer you away. 
So what Jesus says in that moment considers the history of old covenant giving. Jesus is the pivot point bringing us into a new covenant. And some might ask then, well, what's new covenant giving like? And there's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of opinion out there. And I I just invite you, return to God's word and begin to look for direction in God's word. I mean, the reality is if you want what new covenant giving is like in a nutshell and you look in the New Testament, read through Acts. New covenant giving looks a lot more like all. (laughs) It's scary. Read Acts, it's there. All the time, people are just giving as much as they possibly can to the work of God. They're not going into debt, they're not bankrupting themselves, but they're all in, all in. And suddenly after studying the book of Acts, you may be like, you know what, 10%, that's good, that's a bargain. I'll do 10%. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, go with there to me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're actually gonna read from the end of 15 right into 16. The original scriptures that were given to us actually didn't have chapters and verses. So uh, if you read chapter by chapter, it's great practice. Sometimes you need to just wander into the next chapter to see if it actually is meant to connect somehow because that's how it was written. It was all connection. And then some fancy numbers people I'm sure were like, we gotta divide this up. And so they added chapters and verses, and that's how that came to be. Let's listen to what the word offers us here, maybe helping clarify for us what new covenant giving is like. Beginning in verse 58. By the way, let me just say this. 1 Corinthians 15 is this remarkable chapter about God's work and the resurrection and the gospel. And so on the heels of that, we go into this. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. Now about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to those you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. By the way, just on those last few details that Paul gives there, this is beautiful to see right away in the early church practices of giving, there's already oversight and accountability. Money is handled seriously. There's no sort of like, well, you pass the money around here, and does anybody know where the, who's got the collection right now? Um, th- there was a plan. Who are the trusted people? Okay, let's work with them. And, and no one person is responsible. No one person is making all the decisions financially. It's a team of people. And for those of you who are maybe newer to our church family and wonder how does this work in CPC, let me just say, I'm grateful for the work of our whole leadership council. I'm grateful for the work of a finance committee that we have as part of our church. I'm grateful for the work of our bookkeeper. Uh, every year we submit all of our in, uh, financial information to an accountant outside of our organization. We say, please do a deep dive into our books, review everything for us. We'll pay you to do this accountability and oversight matters to us so they look at it all of our stuff is submitted to the denomination that we belong to as well so that they have the opportunity to review everything why because oversight and accountability with resource matters okay the text that we've just read it offers us i believe four thoughts that are very helpful when it comes to new covenant giving let me go through these as briefly as i can first is this new covenant giving is for everyone new covenant giving is for everyone paul says in this note Each one of you. Could everybody say, each one of you? Um, I didn't 
Everybody imagine with me, I have a thread hanging from my fingers right now. Um, actually, I could, you probably just wouldn't see it, okay? So I have a thread hanging from my fingers right now. Here it is, like this. And uh, it's a thread, it has certain strength in it, but I could, I could break it, right? That's what happens with threads. But when you put hundreds and hundreds of threads together, woven together, they find a new strength and a new potential. They can accomplish something great together, right? Many threads together can do good stuff, amen? Okay, so um, several years ago, uh, I had the privilege of officiating a wedding at the Strathcona Park Lodge, which is about an hour or so inland of Campbell River. And I'm wearing my suit to do the wedding. It's a very hot day, gorgeous wedding, great experience. And uh, I'm walking back to my vehicle, open the door to get in, step into the vehicle, and my pants tear wide open. Uh, a gaping hole as far as the east is from the west. <laughs> Praise be to God, it was after the wedding, because had that happened before, I was stuck an hour away from Campbell River. There were no suit pants to be found, I'm sure, and I would have had to uh, wear a kilt or something to do the ceremony, maybe a towel, but um, every one of those threads did not do their part in that moment. <laughs> I want everybody right now, would you just look down at your clothes? Look at your clothes right now and say after, repeat after me, I'm so thankful every one of you is doing your part. <laughs> We're thankful that every one of our uh, pieces of clothing and all the fabrics and threads right now are doing their part. They're being held together, but the reality is they all need to do their part for it to work, right? Uh, we have actually more seating available in the balcony than we do on the main floor. So everybody in the balcony right now, I know when you're up there, you don't often think about the fact that you're being suspended in the air by a series of beams that in some cases are resting on another beam and just simply held together with a screw or a, a nail. And uh, some of the people underneath are like, wait. <laughs> Every piece of that construction matters. The beams and the nails and the screws. Right? We couldn't do it without the nails and the screws, couldn't do it without the beams. Every one of us is called to participate in giving. That's the new covenant model. You might be able to participate like a beam does in a balcony. You might be able to participate like a nail or a screw does in a balcony. It all matters. You might feel like I'm just a little thread. You're part of a beautiful fabric that God has brought together called our church and you matter. So when the first century Corinthians heard this letter read aloud for the first time from St. Paul to them, one of the first questions they all had to ask themselves is, am I doing my part? Is our household doing our part? And if it's not, Maybe we should do something about that. Second thing we learn about New Covenant giving from the text is this. It's consistent. New Covenant giving is consistent. The language Paul uses there, he says, on the first day of every week, a sub-point could be added here that this is deeply connected to worship. What's the first day of the week? Sunday, when Jesus was resurrected. You know, Saturday had been the day of worship, but after the resurrection of Jesus, that became the day of worship for the people of God. And so Paul's intricately connecting this idea that when you give, it's part of your worship. This is what scripture says to us. And it's not just inspired and spontaneous. And you know what? There are times when giving needs to be inspired and spontaneous. 
I hope you have worked it out in your personal budgeting that you have you know, some, some margin financially so that at times when there is an opportunity to help out with the missions project or help out with bread of life, like our, our Christmas campaign this past year, you're like, oh, I can respond to that. Or there's a missions opportunity. Yes, I'm gonna, I'm gonna help plant churches in India. Fantastic. We all need to have the ability to respond obediently to God when he asks us to give, when there's inspiration and when there's spontaneity. However, we cannot rely uh, as followers of Christ, on that alone as a practice for giving. It's not the biblical model alone. The biblical model is calculated and consistent. So first, Corinthians, uh, first century Corinthians, listening to Paul's letter, first are asking themselves, am I doing my part? Is our household doing our part? And then secondly, after they hear this, they're thinking, oh, um, are we consistent? Or are we a bit more sporadic? We're not at all in this. We need to strive for consistency. It's what scripture invites us towards. Third, new covenant giving is proportionate. It's proportionate. Paul says, in keeping with your income. So they didn't have calculators back then, but they did have math. And so he's inviting them, like, think about this. Make a plan and use a percentage. So all of uh, the Jewish Christians in the first century some who would have been in this congregation in Corinth, their mind goes immediately to their historical context. Ah, a tenth. That's what we've done for millennia as God's people. A tenth, the first 10% belongs to God. And for some of the new Gentile believers, this was all new for them. And so we don't know entirely, looking back, did they, uh, were they mandated a tenth as well or did they work with other percentages? What we do know is Paul is saying, listen, do some math, be consistent, It's proportionate to your income. And this is for God's cause on earth. Now, uh, if you're looking for loopholes out of tithing, let me give you a few. Um, I had a friend, great Christian man. And every once in a while, I'd fish with him and I'd be in a boat. And he did this to a few people. He would say, did I ever tell you how tithing changed my life? And as a pastor, I didn't feel trapped in the boat. But I know other people felt trapped. (laughs) And... uh, so he told me the story one time. He said, for many years of my Christian walk, here's how I practiced giving. He said, I, I get paid, and then I pay rent, and I go to Costco and buy all my food. I go golfing a few times. I'd spend money on a few other things, and then I'd be like, right, uh, the church. And then he's like, whatever was left, then I would tithe on that. And he's like, it, it just, uh, it, you know, he's like, it, it, uh, it worked for me for a while, but he's like, I, I had to see what scripture actually was saying on the subject. And I was like, I've got the order backwards. Scripture's context is always the first and the best. He's like, it was a real challenge for me to do that. And then he goes on and on and on telling me about all the blessings that comes to to his life. And again, I need to reinforce this thought. We don't give to get blessed. We give because we're blessed. And even when he'd list all the blessings that had come into his life after he reordered things, hardly any of them were material. He He talked about his marriage. He talked about his children. Just, just blessing of the things that matter most in life. And um, so, but if you're looking for a loophole, that's one way. I mean, pay your rent or your mortgage, do all the things first, and whatever's left, tithe on that. You can try that if you want to. Um, another loophole that I've heard of, my grandpa was a pastor, and he told me once about a gentleman in his church who uh, one day that gentleman realized, I drive my car to church. Gas is expensive. I'm spending tithe dollars now, from now on, on buying gas, because that gets me to church. And so he had informed my grandpa about that, and he was, oh, okay. And so, I mean, if you're looking for a loophole, just calculate all the things that somehow are connected to your faith, and let the tithe pay for that, like gas. Um, 
So, and, and you know what? There's probably a lot of other loopholes out here, but here's my point. If I'm looking for loopholes, I've missed the point, just like the Pharisees have, right? Because where's justice? Where's the love of God in all of that? So the first century Corinthians, they would have heard Paul's letter and then asked themselves, uh, do I calculate my giving on a percentage or is it a little more, have I been a bit haphazard with it? Um, here, let me just say this as well. Pretend there's no pattern for a percentage-based giving anywhere in scripture. Pretend it's not there. I would still pitch it to you and say, this is a great idea. I think we're all on board with the same cause. Uh, God has blessed us individually in different ways. We all have different kinds of jobs and provision coming into our life. Rather than requiring a set amount and blah, 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 blah. Let's just work with a percentage. How about that? Why don't you, you know, and I think it's just a good idea. This is how we support God's cause in the world together. So, uh, number four, lastly, is this. New covenant giving is attached to vision. Paul says this, it's for God's people. Those three words matter so much. First of all, it's for God. Amen? It's unto God. Uh, and two, I think it's important for churches to have a vision that is about God and about people, right? And it's for God's people. Uh, if you're newer to our church family, our mission is this. We're bringing the message and ministry of Jesus into everyday life. So when we work with managing our church's budget, when you give to Comox Pentecostal Church's general fund, what are you investing in? Bringing the message and ministry of Jesus into everyday life. Giving in the new covenant is attached to vision like that. Now, uh, on a practical level, like if you grab a giving envelope that we have at the, uh, in the seats here if you, and you, you give in one of the donation boxes at the back of the main floor or upstairs, or if you go online, you'll see language like this, general fund. And that's sort of where, that's the main destination for our giving, the general fund. And yes, the general fund, you know, puts lights on, turns the heat on for the church, pays for maintenance for our property, pays for having staff that serve and advance our vision. Um, but it does so much more than that. When you give to the general fund, uh, we're empowering an after-school kids program together. Uh, we're advancing the work of God through kids ministry in our church. I don't know if Gabriella Johnson's downstairs or here today if, if Josiah and Kelly are around, but um, many of you know who Josiah and Kelly are, and they have a little daughter, Gabriella, who's about this tall, and she's um, three or four years old, and I have the privilege of being her pastor. And most Sundays, she finds me in the lobby and grabs me by somewhere, and then looks up at me, and she's always got a pretty little outfit on, and she's just beaming with the biggest smile, and then she starts waving and jumping. And sometimes, and this is my favorite, she literally says, I just had sugar. <laughs> From our kids' ministry, I guess. And uh, Josiah is on our leadership council, and one of our leadership council meetings Recently, in the room we were in, there's some sticky notes up on the wall that have work done by our staff talking about the ministries of our church. And there was a note about kids' ministry and our, that is a priority for us. And Josiah looked at that and he's like, I'm just so thankful for what our church is doing with kids right now. He says, I don't know how this has started for, for little Gabriella right now, but she prays at home so much right now. Like she's helping us. She wants to pray about everything. And there was some little issue. Somebody in the household was sick. And so Gabrielle said, we got to pray about that. And so she led the family in a prayer meeting about it. I think it was herself that was sick. And so later that day, parents asked, Gabriella, how are you feeling? She said, why are you asking? Well, you said you were sick earlier. She said, I know, but we prayed about it. 
To her, it was done. We've prayed. And so faith like a child is sprouting. I think that's a great investment in our church. Let's keep investing in children. How do we do it? Through the general fund. Last week, we had four teens baptized. I'd love, and I was so excited. I'd love to see us baptize a few thousand more in this community. How do we do that? Let's keep supporting God's work through the general fund in this church. We have a benevolence fund as a church. It's fueled by our general fund. The benevolence ministry cares for people in this church family right now that are experiencing ongoing struggle or surprise struggle. People who have suddenly have to move and who knows how easy it is to find housing these days. And so we come alongside and help as a church. We're able to because of your giving. There's people who lose a job and they're scrambling and so we get to help. There's people who don't have enough for food right now because of food insecurity and inflation costs. We get to help. How does that happen? We have benevolent funds available to us because of your regular faithful giving to the general fund here. Last year in 2020, we're still um, calculating and finishing up our full financial reporting on last, last fiscal year, but we know this, more money was received in the general fund than we had budgeted for, and that was exciting. And so that gave us the opportunity as we head into this year to say, well, let's earmark 5,000 of that and call it Community Compassionate Response, so that we're ready to just help in the community. And so there's a fire and a home on Ryan Road burns down, and that's a neighbor of somebody in our church, and we're able to say, should we explore helping somehow here? There's family members that are left trying to figure things out. There's somebody that's not part of our church family, a couple. She has breast cancer. He's trying to help out. They've got all kinds, they're snowed in under all kinds of additional costs. Maybe as a church, we could help people in our community. How many people think that's a good idea? Let's keep doing things like that. How do we do that? We give regularly together and we all do our part on that. Here's a a thought for us all to embrace. At the end of the day, it's a universal thought. Money empowers. Money always empowers something. It always does. If I buy my child a $10 Tim Horton cards, I've actually empowered two things in, in the same moment. I've empowered Tim Hortons and I've empowered my child to get as hyper as Gabriella. (laughs) Every dollar we spend empowers something somehow, and so the question for us is always, what do I want to empower with this? So really quickly, just for review, New Covenant giving these four things, it's for everyone, it's consistent, it's proportionate, it's attached to vision. I invite you, just look at this list and allow the Spirit to speak to you. If you had to ask, is there one or two of these things that I need to grow in personally, what would it be? Uh, As we move towards a great course being offered next week, as we consider the topic of the day, I want to just share a short video with you that will be helpful in this time. Let's watch this together. Hi, CPC family. I have the privilege of having a chat here right now with Stefan Scott. Stefan and his wife, Sarah, and their children are part of our church family. They've been part of CPC for several years now. And uh, many of you may already know Stefan. Um, He works as a financial planner. Uh, not just in our community, but actually virtually across Canada. And uh, I thought maybe I'd begin, Stefan, by just even asking you, uh, what does a financial planner do exactly? Yeah, uh, sure, Mike, thank you. Um, A financial planner helps, in a short version, create and plan short and long-term goals for people. Um, Personally, I'm a teacher at heart, so part of my hope is helping people understand more about finances, about money, investing, budgeting, uh, wants and needs now versus the future is a huge component. Uh, That involves getting to know people a little bit, of course, right? Um, And I enjoy doing that for sure. Uh, From a practical perspective, it's looking at things like 
Do people have debt load? What does their cash flow look like? Uh, what is their understanding about savings, investing, markets, uh, lifelong tax efficiency, that sort of thing. Uh, people have different risk tolerances and understanding. So it's diving into really a, a broad, holistic approach. Yeah. Just in that, and I get to be uh, a coach or a guide. And awesome. uh, I love doing that. So Yeah, good for you. Um, for our CPC family here, Stefan is going to be teaching a, a class on Saturday, January 28th called Smart Money. It's going to just be a morning class during at 9 a.m. go till about lunchtime where he's just going to offer a practical teaching. He, he's a great Christian man, so it comes with good, good wisdom from God's heart. Um, teaching on budgeting, teaching on, you know, if you're facing some debt, how do we tackle that? Um, if you're thinking you've got question marks about saving long term, saving for the future, um, he's going to do some teaching, some Q&A. It'll be a great thing. So we invite you to sign up online and join that class. I wanted to ask you, Stefan, um, you and I have spent uh, a little bit of time together on a few occasions, and I've enjoyed getting to know you and your story. And one time you told me that um, in your faith journey, there, there was a period of time where, you know, charitable giving to the church, regular support to the church wasn't really part of your grid the same way that it is now. Some people call that tithing or, you know, there's other terminology that's used. Um, but then it, it did change. My question for you is, uh, how did that change? Yeah, yeah. Uh, like anything, I think uh, I'm an evidence-based person. Like if someone's, you know, I, I want to learn about stuff that interests me. So I dig in and I do my homework because I want to get a reasonable and reliable answer. So as a very young Christian, people were, you know, passing a pot around or talking about tithing and giving money. And I was like, Oh, is this a thing? I, I just didn't know. Right. So, so I dug into it, uh, dug into my Bible, started looking at other, you know, teachers I respected and seemed to have very sound knowledge. So, uh, you know, over a course of a few months, that was sort of one of the things I, I dug into a lot. Um, I mean, the old Testament is very clear about tithing, right? 10% or even more depending on the circumstances, but we're now under a new covenant, right? We're in New Testament times, so we're not under that Old Testament Mosaic law anymore. Uh, you know, and then Paul at one point sums up that whole law by saying, you know, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a different situation now as compared to the Old Testament. Um, but there are places in the New Testament where it is spoken about, especially with regards to those who commit their lives to the gospel as teachers as preachers, as elders within the church, uh, Paul does state that we are to support them. So there is that argument there that for some, in some way, we're supposed to give and help support those people who have given their lives to the gospel. Um, we also know God loves a cheerful giver. God says clearly, don't give reluctantly or with unhappiness, but give cheerfully. And uh, so in my perspective, the Old Testament gives us a model uh, that we're not strictly underneath, but it, it's, a, it's a guide, I think. Um, and there's a, a biblical scholar named Don Carson. I really like how he put it. So I'll share a little bit about his words. Uh, he says, you know, with the new covenant, we should value the riches we have in Christ so highly and our freedom from sin so highly and the gospel so highly that we should just love to give. Mm. And Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive, right? Yeah. So if we take that approach, there's practical benefits that I've seen in my life. Um, we start to become free of a love of things. 
yeah. right? And a dependence on things. And really, I think with this amazing New Testament covenant, we should really be outgiving and outdoing what was under the Old Testament sure. because with Jesus, everything's better. So why is not everything amplified? So that's sort of the perspective I take. Um, it's not always easy. I'm not always cheerful, but uh, <laughs> it's a part of my life. And I've just seen the way God has worked and used that and, and just internal blessing and, of mm -hmm. course, the ability to perhaps bless others too. And, and uh, yeah, so I, I for many, many years now, it's been a regular part of our lives. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. That's uh, helpful for me to hear. And thanks for just taking a few minutes right now to to think on some of these things. I know money money's an important topic in our lives, uh, and it's an important thing in our faith as well. And uh, I encourage everybody watching again, consider joining us at the Smart Money course. I'm going to be there. I'm looking forward to learning more from you, Stefan. And so I appreciate this time. Thanks so much. Let's stand together as we move towards a conclusion right now. I want to, I want to read something to you, a concluding thought. Um, if there's one thing that I hope you hold on to from today, it's actually this. I, I want to read, I think, two verses to you. In the first passage we looked at, Luke chapter 11, the, the story of the woes is set up like this. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. Think about that line. So Jesus went in and reclined at the table. Keep that in mind. If you have your scriptures, you can flip over to Luke 15. I'm going there. I'll read this for you. Luke chapter 15 is the time Jesus tells three stories about things that are lost, a coin, a sheep, and then a son. And that chapter, this that has the story of the prodigal sons in it, um, begins this way in verse 15. It says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. And verse two, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus tells three stories about the lost things. And the last story is about a son that's lost, squanders his father's wealth, messes up his life, has no hope, and his last hope is, I suppose if my dad is merciful, I could return home. He returns home. The father joyfully greets him, throws a party for him, and this son has a brother, and that brother has faithfully served him, served the father. He's followed all the rules, and he's so upset that this son has returned. And who is that older brother in the story? He's the Pharisees. He's the one who codified everything, did everything right, and then somebody who is lost is found. And so here's God trying to say to the Pharisees, listen, you've missed the point about justice. You've missed the point about love. Look, here's a broken person that's come back. Congratulations for doing all your codifying really well. But look, we've got a family member that's come back. This is what it's all about. And the end of the story, the end of the parable of the lost sons, sons uh, it's not just one son who's lost, it's both, ends with the father inviting that older brother back into the home to feast with them. And it ends without resolve. It's kind of like jazz. It just sort of, it's, oh, it's done. <laughs> Why does Jesus tell that story that way? Because who's in his audience when he's telling that story? The Pharisees, the very ones who are missing the point. And why does Jesus want them to feel the the lack of resolve at the end of the story, because Jesus is not just inviting those who know they're sinners to come home. He's inviting those who don't yet realize that they're, 
They're codifying everything. They're doing their best to religiously control God, and they've missed the point. He's saying, even you, come to my table. Come to my feast. I want to be in relationship with you. And so my final thought to you is this. Disregard everything in the message if you like, but pay attention to this. This is the kind of God we serve, that he finds the most broken, humble people in the world, and he offers them salvation. And he even turns to the most proud and arrogant people like you and me, right? And he says, come to my table. There's room for you, friends. This is Jesus, and I'm so glad that we get to follow him together. Let's worship in response. Thank you, Lord. I think we love it in Scripture when we see Jesus being merciful to the those who seem so deserving of it, the broken, the needy. But in today's text, we see that he receives an invitation from a proud Pharisee, and he goes. And then he tells a story to give an invitation to even those who are undeserving. His love for us is so big, it's beyond our ability to fully understand that. My point is this, if you need his help today, Let's look to him in faith. I'm going to invite our prayer ministry team to come forward right now. You may have come with a particular need or concern in your life. Maybe something was sort of just weighing on your heart today, and that's why you're here. Or maybe something, it's a nagging thought or a, just something that's painful or problematic in your life. This team would love to pray with you today. They're going to stand here and be available to you as we conclude our service. Let's pray. Father, thank you for each person here. As we go into your world on your mission, we need your grace. We declare a dependence upon you. We want others, as we've sung, to experience your love and experience your truth. And so we humbly offer ourselves and say, would you use us? We'd love to bring your message, your ministry, your ways, your words, your works to our world, into the everyday stuff of Monday and Wednesday and Friday and all week long. Give us your help. Thank you for your presence. We go with you. In Jesus' name, and everyone said... Amen. Amen.